Welcome back to the Endotechno Podcast, Season 3, Episode 23. I'm Alan Hallowell, Venture Partner at Leading Early Stage Indonesian VC, AC Ventures, and Founder of Startup Consultancy, Gizmo Advisors. Over the past couple of years, we've explored digital transformation from a wide range of angles. We have, however, analyzed it as it relates more to consumers and enterprise. How is government transforming digitally in Indonesia? Today's guest, Farina Sitmurang, has founded Pensive, a startup dedicated to helping governments solve their most complex challenges in digital transformation. Pleasure to have you join us today, Farina. Hi, great to be here, Alan. Again, our pleasure to have you on. Now, Farina, in addition to a number of leadership roles within Indonesia's tech space, you've also been involved with the country's political sphere as part of President Jokowi's transition team and Catalyst Strategy, which we'll discuss shortly. You're, in fact, widely known as one of the architects of the quote-unquote Jokowi effect. What is the inspiration of your time in politics? Yeah, Alan, back in 2008, I was actually still a student in business school in Chicago. And I was one of those people who handed out the Obama campaign stickers to other students. So I got really fascinated with that campaign in particular. And then from 2008 and then 2012, the Obama campaign had done really well when it comes to leveraging data and their digital strategies. I really got fascinated by how they did it in a presidential election scale. And I also got fascinated by the use of narratives like storytelling, how to make people afraid, how to make people inspired, the hero's journey, storytelling strategies. I read everything from all the political campaigners like Frank Lutz on the Republican side, George Lakoff on the Democratic side. So I read all of this and I got really fascinated how you can change people's mind from simply changing the name, for example, from estate tax to death tax. Those things fascinate me a lot how words can actually do that. So one day I was living on a friend's couch, actually, after I got fired from my last startup in San Francisco. And I was like, you know what? Maybe this is the time when I'm going to join a presidential election campaign team. So that's how I started. Very precocious of you. I can't imagine your Northwestern classmates were thinking in that direction. I think many of us now are much more keenly aware of the role of digital in politics, but you seem to be before your time in that regard. Now, before we move on to your current entrepreneurial endeavors, I'm indeed keen to explore your nearly eight years with Catalyst Strategy, which describes itself as a quote-unquote strategic communication consulting firm that has worked for and advised presidential candidates, gubernatorial candidates, and many others. Did you model the firm after any other companies globally? I would say maybe Blue State Digital is one of the firms that was responsible for supporting the Obama campaign. Um, I would say that is probably part of the inspiration. And as I mentioned earlier, just read a lot of work by top political campaigners, master storytellers from any parts of the world. That's how I got inspired. Understood. Now, there must be an absolute treasure trove of fascinating stories of Catalyst's work in various political campaigns. Would you mind sharing one or two with us? Yeah, I don't mind. I think how I got to be part of the Jokowi campaign team was probably one of the most interesting. And I mentioned that I was in San Francisco living on my friend's couch with my dog because I moved my life there after being in Canada for some time. And I didn't know what to do. I've lost my job at that point and 
if you're at the rough bottom, there's no way but up. So I thought about maybe that was like the time I could finally start doing my own thing. So I really just have one goal in mind. This is back in 2013. You know what? I'm finally going to do this. I'm going to join a presidential election campaign team. I went without knowing or understanding the landscape at the time and just went full in and moved myself and my dog back to Indonesia, trying to figure out. And I actually started with working with one political candidate for a different political party. And I gave this person my digital strategy, working with them for like three months, not getting paid. Then this was like months before the election. And then I had to stop work because it was very unclear at the time who's going to be running for a presidential election. Finally, when Jokowi became one of the candidates, then I had to push myself and find who are the people I need to be talking to. That also, I got rejected so many times. Ended up pitching to one of the VP candidates for Jokowi. Then he said, yes, I love the strategy. Let's work together. And then two days later, this VP candidate no longer become a VP candidate. But then he helped me to meet Jokowi directly. And then the rest is history. That's how I got involved. The process itself probably took about a year and a half to two years before I ended up getting there. Understood. Perseverance is clearly an emerging theme in our discussion here, along with your loyalty to your dog, I assume. Now, what are your broad thoughts on the role of digital strategy in Indonesian politics in 2022. Specifically, what are the ups and downs in your mind of its increasingly widespread usage? I think the digital landscape has changed, certainly from back in 2014 until today. Right now, I think it's a highly polarizing, I would say, tool, right? Anything to do with social media, it's a highly polarizing tool. And there's just a lot more today than what we had back then. Obviously, people can get so caught up by reading and listening in the same echo chamber, I would say. So you get the same message all the time and just emphasize your own values and your beliefs. And doesn't really leave much room for either critical thinking or healthy debate because you just so polarize into one side of the spectrum. So that's where we are today, I believe. And it'll be like an interesting thing actually during another campaign where it's going to be in 2024 for the next presidential election. Understood. Now, you've been educated significantly overseas, and I assume you're very well traveled to say the least. How politically active are Indonesians online relative to some of their peers globally? I don't have the stats in front of me, but if I remember correctly, Indonesians are using their phone 10 hours on average. And a lot of that time, I would say, would be on either WhatsApp or social media or YouTube. And what is exciting to watch besides entertainment, even politics is entertainment these days. I would assume Indonesians are very active. Just looking at the communities around me or even my friends and families, and how during election times, usually it's quite hot and divisive and all the WhatsApp groups are filled with links and information and disinformation. So I would say quite active. Now, Farina, do you have strong views these days around the role of the large digital platforms, the social platforms such as Facebook and Twitter in political discourse? Yeah, I think how these platforms are built is helping to I guess, divide and 
polarize some of these views, right? Because once you click a link, say you are supporting war on Ukraine, as an example, and you watch a few videos on that, and next thing YouTube will, I guess, suggest you to watch another thing and another thing, and then it gets tracked to Instagram and TikTok, and you're seeing the same stuff. So you kind of believed how the world is exactly like you, right? And just emphasize your beliefs and your values. And that's the role of these technology companies. They have allowed that to happen. I understand what their metrics are and what their agenda is. And it's obviously probably not aligned all the time with what is best for society or humanity, I would say. But I guess it's a matter of educating people and getting people to become more aware of what is happening to them. And I don't think right now people are aware that this is all happening. Obviously, these are my opinions and I have nothing against these big technology companies doing that because I run a tech company on my own. And of course, we want our products to be used as much as possible by our users. I kind of understand why they're doing that. But the outcome is obviously something that you can't also control. That that would be my take, Alan. That's really helpful. Now, myself as an American, I'm wondering whether there has been anywhere near the amount of dialogue around the roles that the social platforms such as Facebook and Twitter play in politics and how they've impacted politics for the better or the worse. Are we having a mirror image discussion in Indonesia? Or is it far less prevalent a discussion topic? Is it something that you think with time becomes as prominent a dialogue as it has been in the U.S.? Certainly, Indonesians haven't really discussed this a lot. I don't think we're pushing any of these big platforms to help us have a more healthy political debate. I don't think that's anywhere in the average Indonesian agenda. But I would say, who knows, it will take some time to catch up towards that direction. Also, at the same time, I think if I know now, you probably can't do some of the tactics or strategies that we had done back in the 2014 campaign, just because YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, they have all put on these different new set of rules and regulations on how to influence a political election. So I don't think the game is the same anymore. We have new players like TikTok, all these other media companies out there. It's probably net net still going to be very similar, still going to be polarizing. People are still going to listen to their own echo chamber. But in terms of awareness of the average Indonesian pushing them to behave differently, not yet. It's not there. Surely we're just talking the middle upper class, the elites, they probably will have similar takes with my view, but we have 270 million people. A lot of them still only care about where am I going to get food for the next day? So I don't think they care so much about what we just discussed. I have so many other questions I'd love to ask you on this front, but I'm also very keen to find out what you are doing as an entrepreneur today. So if you don't mind, let's move on to your current startup. Can you share with us what Pensive does? Yeah, so right now, my company, we help emerging markets, governments to transform digitally, become more efficient, more effective in their most critical operations. We help them do that by providing our technology, our software, right, that would help them reduce a lot of manual work with our analytics, with our insights to action platform. So that's what I'm focusing on today. Understood. 
Our tagline reads, Pensive is an emerging AI deep tech startup based in Indonesia. Now, we can all agree, hopefully, that the startup ecosystem has been on nothing short of a tear in Indonesia. But I have to say, I rarely see the words AI and deep tech appear in the same sentence as Indonesia. The market instead seems to be much more focused on less technology-intensive constructs, such as e-commerce platforms, B2C business models, etc. Why do you feel that Indonesia is well-positioned to play a major role in AI and deep tech? I think it has a lot to do with our customers and our market. We do see a major need in some of the large organizations that we serve on these types of products that we are building for them. And the market is willing to pay for it. Our customers are willing to pay for the kind of technologies that we provide to them. So I'm just solely focusing on that. I think I have a different vision when it comes to like how I want to build my company versus maybe trying to figure out how can we serve, for example, a larger number of customers like SME on the B2B side or consumers without having an idea yet how we can get to profitability. I'm the complete opposite. I actually not just enjoy paper money, but also I believe that you need to have really good fundamentals on how you can make money and how you can get to profitability. And the markets that we serve, like large organizations, the government agencies or the enterprise, not just in Indonesia, but across emerging markets, because there's a huge need, they are willing to pay for it. Regardless of what that technology is, it could be any other types of technology, I would say. It could be hardware, it could be infrastructure play, as long as someone is willing to pay for what you are building. That's what I'm focusing on. Understood. Now, Farina, can you give us two or three examples of what governmental segments or departments Pensive is doing its most impactful work for in Indonesia? Most of our projects are quite confidential because we do work directly with the government. But as an example, in the defense and intelligence sector, we are helping some of these agencies to manage some of their cases. And we do that by providing AI-driven analytics to give intelligence and then they can do something about it. So it's not just intelligence, not just providing data. But we provide the intelligence, our insights, and then we provide also the platform to make decisions on what to do after you read this or consume this intelligence, right? And then they can collaborate on this platform. What used to be done, Kelly Manual, they would have Excel spreadsheets or PowerPoint, print it out, show it to their boss, et cetera. Now they can make decisions a lot faster because it's all done in our platform. So that would be the first one. And the second one, we also help exactly the same thing, but on cybersecurity. So we help set up one of the cybersecurity operations center for one of the government agencies. So we did that and we provide, again, intelligence to action platforms with our software. I would say we have other things very similar to that, very similar foundation of technology, which is on smart nation initiatives. So we have that as well, Alan. So that's what we're working on currently. Understood. So for anyone familiar with the U.S. company Palantir, it seems as though you guys are doing some things that run parallel to that very famous company. Now, a broader picture question, Farina, which I think you are uniquely positioned to be able to answer. How do Indonesians' educational inputs need to improve to deliver the country 
to a meaningful global role in areas such as AI, deep tech, Web3, and other dominant trends today? We definitely do need to improve on that because a lot of people, as probably many of your guests, Alan, have probably said, one of the biggest challenges is to hire great talents. And sad to say that we can't really fulfill some of our needs right now just by hiring in Indonesia. So we do have to look abroad for some of these more specialized roles. We are starting to go directly into top universities and just meet the students and get them to start with us as interns, et cetera, and then train them in-house. But it really is still a challenge. It should improve uh, quite soon because we want to grow as fast as we can. But then the people that we can hire is also very limited. And plus we're competing, I would say, with other unicorns or decacorns out there who probably also offer better employer branding simply because they've been around for a lot longer, larger. So yeah, it's a challenge for us. I can understand. Now, Farina, are there any interesting overseas projects that Pensieve is working on that you can discuss with us? Yeah, I mean, without sharing any details, we do have quite interesting projects, very similar to what we have done here in Indonesia, but we are also working in some neighboring countries in Southeast Asia and also in the Middle East. And we have so far great discussions with several government agencies in Africa and also Central America. And it's a surprise for us because originally our vision is to be in Southeast Asia and dominate the Southeast Asian market. But as we found out, a lot of these emerging markets have very similar problems. And so it's not just a Southeast Asian problem, but it's an actually uh, an emerging market problem. So yeah, we're quite excited to work beyond Southeast Asia in the future. Excellent. Going back to another basic question for you, Farina, what is Pensieve's prevailing business model? In other words, how do we generate revenues? We're a product company and we sell licenses to our customers. It could be an annual license subscription, very typical, like what you would get from any other, I would say, enterprise software company. Alan. Understood. Now, what is your vision for Pensieve over, say, the next five years? Where are we going to be within the next half decade? I would say we would already be in a lot of the other emerging markets that I have spoke about earlier. That would be the goal. And to have products that really serve digital transformation within the government, there has been an impetus lately because of COVID that these governments transform digitally so they can deliver better public services to people. So we want to play a huge role in that. We also believe in a lot of integration between government agencies. So using the government itself as a platform, that's where we're seeing this moving forward. It's no longer just building a siloed system for one agency and then we have to build another one. More integration which means also better for everyone involved. It's going to be better for citizens. It's going to be better for the people who work for the government. It's going to be better for businesses. And it's also going to be better for any G2G relationships moving forward. We really want to play a huge part in that kind of vision. Understood. Now, on a more personal note, Farina, I gather from some of your investors that you have also taken a specific interest in mental health. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, I don't know. Since I was four years old, I had a question to my mom. I asked, I really don't understand what is the purpose of being alive. I had an existential crisis at four years old. So 
<laughs> that's where the journey actually start to figure out why we're here and what is the purpose and who am I and all these other things. But then I also found out that a journey to mental health is also helping me to stay sane in creating companies because it's not a very easy journey. There has been really high highs and super low lows. So how do you navigate that? At the end of the day, I'm a big believer in doing therapy to become more aware of your own self, to get to know yourself a little bit more, have a better relationship with yourself and also have a better relationship with other people, becoming happy, enjoying my life while obviously trying to still be ambitious and strive for success. So I do a lot to stay mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically healthy. So I do a combination of everything from workouts to meditation. As I said, going to therapy, having support groups, or building close relationships with the people I love the most. So what I do on the personal side. It just seems like we've been hit by an absolute tsunami of relatively new mental health issues and an amplification and pre-existing one. So I really laud your open eyes approach to that. I wanted to wrap up by simply asking you, what is the oddest thing about yourself that few people know? This is really hard. I didn't have a chance to think about this. So when I did the Myers-Briggs test, I found out that I'm an extreme extrovert. I scored 100% on the extrovert side. But I actually really enjoy spending time on my own and I don't do my best when it comes to writing or focused with a lot of people around me. Actually, I just need to be by myself. So I always start my day, not just with meditation, but being extremely precise and focused in how I brew my coffee. And I'm very particular on this, Alan, and if I can share a story. I used to live in the middle of nowhere in Canada where the winters can go down to minus 30 degrees Celsius and it's really cold and you can't really do anything else outside. So I actually learned to brew coffee and become super obsessed with it. And I have this Excel spreadsheet that measures every single time I brew coffee, what is the temperature, what is the coarseness of the grind, the different tasting notes, the ratio between water and beans in order to find out the perfect formula for a cup of coffee. That's probably one of the most particular things about me. I really don't like to waste my palate on bad coffee. You're preaching to the converted. Have you heard of James Hoffman? No, who's James? Okay, you are not alone. There's a guy named James Hoffman who is a super personality on YouTube. You need to look at his instructional videos on how to make lattes and various other coffee oh. products, but I'm there with you. I feel myself to be a very discriminating consumer of coffee. I'm simply too lazy to go to the lengths that you clearly do. But in any event, note to self, need to get some tips from you. Actually, I was just thinking about picking between my coffee precision techniques and how I structure my notes for almost everything that I do. So I have a note on my meditation, my therapy session, my tennis notes or my golf notes. Like I, I had to write it down every time my coach says something to me. And so I have a note on everything that I do. It's kind of like a weird thing. But yeah, those are the two things that I've probably most thought about. Got you. So you are a meticulous note taker. It's not very meticulous. It's more like a summary of things. But I do that because I learned this concept that your mind is not for 
storing ideas, but it's for having ideas. I think it's from the GTD methodology or something. I then basically don't let my brain remember most stuff, but I rely on my notes to capture everything and have a pretty clear mind and I don't overthink stuff most of the time. I don't spend my nighttime lying in bed and still thinking about stuff. It's just because everything is just on a notebook or like on my notes app. Wow. Okay. So there's clearly a computer analogy here. You basically have a voluminous hard drive and you try to keep your RAM as unspoiled as possible so that you can use it for higher performance in the moment, thinking and, and action. Is that right? Yeah, it's pretty much like that. I don't have a lot of apps open in my head. So I'm not at all a multitasker. My husband hates it because I couldn't listen to him as I'm watching Netflix because I'm super just single focus, I think. And I really don't like doing other things while I'm in the middle of something else. So I, I have only one app open at all times. That's excellent. I think life should be lived that way. I may claim that I'm able to hear my own spouse while reading a book, but I'm not doing justice to either activity. Such a fascinating and particularly multifaceted discussion today, Farina. Again, I feel I owe it to our audience to run out a broader Netflix-like limited series. Farina, the political consultant. Farina, the entrepreneur. Indonesia's government digital transformation. Precision coffee brewing techniques for beginners. So many other potential titles for follow-on episodes. So... Do not be surprised if we come back at you with some follow-up requests to come back on the series. Thanks a bunch again for joining today, Farina. Thanks, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. We hope our listeners have enjoyed today's episode. As always, please consider sharing any feedback that you have about the Endotechno podcast with us. Terima kasih. Sampai jumpa lagi. Bye-bye.